to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. With your host, Conan Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rocking about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though... If you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with sharp and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed it is. It's a science thing. It's a science place. It's a scientific fact. We're all up in your face. It is time once again for the one, the only, Protonic Reversal. Welcome to it, welcome to it, welcome to it. Back from tour yet again. Another short one. And here I am, back in the Protonic Reversal studios. Very excited for this episode. I'm very excited for most of the episodes. Uh, but this is, uh, this, this should be a good one. I, and we're going to get to, uh, Mr. Mark Davies of uh, Thinking Fellows Union. Of course, before we do that, let's just, uh, get through this introduction stuff that's hopefully seeming less and less awkward since I started doing it. Welcome to Conan Neutron's Proton Conversal. I'm your host, Conan Neutron. I'm a rock and roll lifer who has toured and recorded for over 22 years, most known for the band Conan Neutron, The Secret Friends. Music is a huge part of my life, and I use the format of this long-running podcast to talk about music with musicians whose work I enjoy and respect. Folks that may or may not be household names, but do something very special. This is episode 309. If this is your first time listening to Proton Conversal, all of the archives are protonconversal.com and are always free, no ads, no sponsors, no kidding. And if you'd like to support the show and get episodes sooner, you can give $1 a month to patreon.com slash Conversal. And if you like the show or even just a single episode, please feel free to share it along, like, subscribe, or post a review. All that helps people find the show. It's just a darn nice thing to do. So, yeah. Why don't we talk to uh, Mark from the from the Ding Dang Thinking Fellers, huh? How about that? Does that sound all right? <laughs> ding Dang is an official term of measurement, actually. Mark, <clears throat> welcome good. to the show, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, I was very excited to see... Uh, the Thinking Fellows Union Instagram account up here. I'm like, oh, wow, they're on Instagram. That's great. Uh, and then first thing I thought of was the character limit for a username. So I'm glad you guys had to go to acronym <laughs> because yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> that's a band name that was not, not made for these times. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not Twitter friendly, probably. Yeah, yeah exactly. In, in the age of like Matt, like all encompassing ADD. Uh, but it also st- struck me that anybody that knows Thinking Fellers also knows what that acronym means. And so there being actual Thinking Fellers news, which is to say they're, uh, we're going to get right to it, that, that there's reissues of uh, two of the most badass records coming up in the year 2022 is, is very fantastic news to fans of the band, myself included, inclusive. Uh, how long of a journey was this to uh, to get this done? And how did, how did that all come to pass? And welcome to the show, by the way. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you know, the, we've had people kind of reach out over the years about reissuing 
records, um, probably most often Strangers from the Universe. Um, but we're kind of notorious as a band for just not really getting our shit together in, in any kind of business matters. So we never really followed through on any of that kind of stuff. And uh, But last fall, started having some conversations with Hisham Mayat, who um, we've known for a long time. And he's done, you know, really great work with Sublime Frequencies and put out all kinds of uh, amazing uh, releases there. So when he started expressing interest, you know, that really got our ears perked up and decided to kind of get serious about getting back into that and trying to get this stuff back out there. So it's been, I guess, about over the last year that we've been, you know, since we started talking about it and then working on getting it together. And some of this is, did it require, uh, did you require remastering anything along those lines or or finding the masters? (laughs) Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. It's been a while, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. Um, we did uh, we did have it remastered. Um, awesome. We worked with Mark Jurgis, who is somebody we also have known for a long time, and he's done a lot of that kind of work for Sublime Frequencies. Um, you know, and he was also in the scene in bands in the 90s and in the Oakland scene. Um, so we crossed paths a lot, and so it was just kind of a natural fit. And yeah, you know, we wanted to try some things to see what what could be tweaked with the with the sound. Um, not that we were unhappy with the originals, but um, just wanted to see what we could do. And uh, I was really happy with what he was able to bring out. You know, kind of clarified some of the vocals a little bit sure. more and yeah. and that kind of stuff. Uh, and there's so and the reason why that must be so interesting because your records are pretty dense. Like there's a lot, yes. all of them. There's a lot going on. Like it's all, like, there's a lot going on. Like, so I think it's really challenging <laughs> for him. I think. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's almost like, well, what do you put the focus on, right? And, and yeah, and, exactly. And, and it's nice to have a band with just like exploding with ideas like that. But uh, you know, there, there's also like what what constitutes a song? What makes the makes the song good? <laughs> And and that you're what you think yeah. is going to be one way is maybe not necessarily later on like oh yeah. well you know we could have moved this up a little bit or moved that down or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean there's such a density to the sound, and that was a that was a, a challenge all along in our career that I think I feel like we got better at over time. But in the early days, I think a lot of that stuff kind of suffered from a lot of frequency cancellation like you got three guitars and a bass or two basses and two guitars all going and like you're in the same domains and you're just kind of canceling each other out sometimes and um over time i think we started to realize oh we don't have to have everything going full bore all the time on the recording even if we do it that way live you know and it has a certain power from the density live that might not be the best way to present the song on a recording. Right. And so, you know, I think we got better about bringing things in and out and featuring parts, you know, as we went along. But um, with with remastering this stuff, I mean, you're not remixing it, but you can bring certain frequencies out. And um, that was one of the things we kind of wanted to do is see if there were ways of featuring different parts that, that kind of got lost or 
in the original or canceled each other out and maybe you push something down and pull something else up and and get a different sound to it and was was any was any of this like uh like writing it wrong <laughs> maybe or anything along those lines it was a more just not exactly no i mean just it i think it was more a matter of just seeing you know what else could come out of it you right. know and I, I guess if there was anything I would say of writing it wrong, my, my personal feeling is that, um, you know, we always kind of thought of vocals as another instrument in the mix, sure. you know? So it's like this, the instrumentation is not meant to be the supporting cast for the vocalist. It, it's all important stuff and it's just one of the, one of the parts. So I think, on some of our mixes originally the vocals were mixed down maybe lower than other bands might have done because of that philosophy but ironically i think the human ear wants to pick out a vocal it's just natural and so if it's mixed down your ear is struggling to (laughs) to make it out and that sort of ends up de-emphasizing the other stuff so, you know, if we we're going to do anything to tweak the sound of it, that was one thing that I was interested in trying is to maybe feature the vocals a little bit more. And maybe, you know, counterintuitively, that would even bring some of the other stuff out in the way that your brain perceives it. Sure. And and it's, you know, there was a, certainly a push towards, especially the early 90s, like let's make the vocals like loud as everything can possibly be. And uh, much like many things, Thinking Fellers, we're not <laughs> we're not subscribers to that that school of thought. But it is. But as you mentioned, yeah, then the, you, know, you you're trained to like kind of want to pick it out, so you can you can kind of come at it from a different way with a sort of a fresh sound on it. Did you have a like? I feel like as far as recordings go. These uh, so admonishing the bishops and uh, strangers from the universe. I feel like those are some of the two kind of like best entry points. Yeah, for yeah. the band as far as <laughs> some some of the least oblique uh, <laughs> <laughs> thinking about stuff. Which which I say that as a fan and with all love. Yeah, no, love, I get it. Love. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, I, you know, it's still going to be harder for folks to kind of grab onto without a frame of reference necessarily uh without something to latch onto, and you know i think in an alternate universe like you know my, my pal the tortoise could have been like an mtv hit you know why not did you hear the other stuff that was on mtv at the time like it was, sure it's not, <laughs> not much different um but what i think was most admirable and what earned you guys so many diehard fans over the years is just your steadfast commitment to doing things your way, like building your own universe and your own, uh, your own language really. And like your own frame of references, uh, which isn't to say that there aren't corollaries for their like like-minded bands, but that's an amazing run to do that. Cause there, there's no, cause you know, uh, Bob dinners is not any more, you know, it's not like that's the sellout record or something, right? Like it's right. not any more like weird or, or crazy than uh, worm by Leonard necessarily. Mm-hmm. And, did you just know from the beginning, like, hey, we're going to, this is how we're going to conduct ourselves and uh, we we know the best for our art? Or did it just evolve as like a standard course of being? I, 
I mean, I think we knew from the beginning that's how we wanted to do it, but it wasn't like we, you know, consciously expressed that to each other. Um, I think the the main kind of underlying thing was we want to express whatever it is we, we're going to express, and it would be great if people respond to it and be great if we get a lot of fans. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could, you know, quit our day jobs and live off the music? But the minute you start uh, adjusting what you're doing to try to anticipate what people want to hear, then you're no longer expressing yourself. You're expressing what you think people want to hear. Right. And then if they respond to it, they're not really responding to you. They're responding to your abstract idea of what you think they want. And so it's like, it's a calculation almost. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of meaningless that if your music, you know, moves people, you want it to be because you've expressed something of yourself that they connected to. And so, you know, you kind of just have to do what what you want to do and what you think sounds good and hope that people dig it. And, you know, if they don't, whatever, <laughs> you know, you, you can dig it yourself in, in your little insular group of five people and, and, and get off on that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's a through line through all of it. Um, that just, it, it's inviting, right? It's, it, it's inviting if you know how to read the invitation. <laughs> it's probably the best way. That yeah. It's never it. meant to be, you know, off putting or like obtuse, yeah. you know, in a, in a purposeful way, but it's just, you know, how it came out. Yeah. Uh, so let's so so first of all, I, I do think also when I think of Thinking Fellows, I think of like the sort of halcyon days of when San Francisco was an inc- a great area for creativity, which for the younger listeners and, and viewers, that actually at one time was the case. Uh, and yeah, we'll go ahead and say is less so now. <laughs> it's probably the best way because it was cheap. It was cheap to live there. And, and yeah, I, you could you could survive. I mean, especially in where we were in the early days in, in the East Bay in yeah. Oakland, you live very cheaply. Yeah, and now yeah. of course that's all been completely ruined. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it's it's interesting to me that when you think of you know bands following their own uh, compass, so to speak, that like Thinking Fellers were like one of the the masthead bands for that, like a, a, amongst a a group of bands that all kind of were doing their own thing, but didn't necessarily sound like each other. Like it almost seemed like it would be like a um, you wouldn't want to sound like anyone else. Like that'd be like, Ugh, that's terrible. Why would you do that? Uh, so let's take it back to the the very early days. So uh, Worm by Leonard is what eighty eight, right? And that's um, yeah. Did you? How did you know to settle on San Francisco? Like, what what drew you to uh, to SF to do things? Um, you know, most of us were from Iowa, and we knew each other in Iowa City, going to college there, and we're in different bands in Iowa City. And that was a really cool scene in Iowa City. Actually, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't know it, but there was a lot of really interesting stuff happening at that time, mid-80s. And, but, it, you know, it's tiny. So there's not like a really a lot of room for growth there. You kind of we kind of topped out what we could do in that area. Um, and, you know, we were graduating from college. And so you're kind of in, at that 
point in your life where you're going to go do the next thing. And I had visited San Francisco with my family in high school for a few days and just liked the vibe of it. Mm-hmm. So I'd kind of thought that that's where I want to go after I graduate. And, um, Ann and, Ann and Hugh and I were in a band together in Iowa city. Hugh had already moved away, but, um, Ann and I decided we were going to move out to California and Brian was in another band that we were, you know, in the scene with and friendly with, and he decided he wanted to go too. So, I mean, it was sort of impulsive in some ways, but we knew a little bit about what was going on there and we were attracted to certain things there, like the residents yeah, and residents, yeah, the sure. Ralph record scene and that kind of stuff. But, um, it was more just like, let's go somewhere where, you know, there's more possibilities. Um, cause we all grew up in very rural conservative, um, environment in Iowa and just wanted to, to go somewhere where we could kind of be a little bit more exploratory. So, so Ann and Brian and I moved out there and then, um, a few months later, Paul, who we knew in Iowa city had moved out to back out to California where he had grown up actually. And, uh, we needed a drummer and he's, he wasn't really a drummer, but he was like, Hey, I, I, I can pass as a drummer. (laughs) (laughs) So he joined and then Hugh moved out. He had moved to DC, but moved out. And, um, that was in 87. And then we, um, started playing shows a few months after that. And that's, uh, so in those early, like that first record, the the cassette, I guess, uh, is what it was. It was, um, kind of more, almost more on the folky side, like, like weird folk, like kind of a little less, um, like the noise making was sort of more from like a lo-fi standpoint almost. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> and did you, uh, but it also like the, the enthusiasm seems to be like right there as far as like, Hey, let's use these things to make like cool sounds and cool, weird. Yeah. Sounds. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I mean, we were messing around with stuff like that, you know, even in Iowa city. Yeah. Um, but the way I think of where my Leonard is, um, you know, we had all come from environments where we were kind of like individual songwriters and, you know, all of us were writing songs and that group of songs that are on that record are kind of like, for the most part, more individual songwriters um, that had brought in, even though they were, you know, three or four people bringing in songs, it was an assemblage of that. And by the time we got to Tangle, which is the next record, yeah. you know, we had all been living together in the same house in Oakland and practicing there and just jamming all the time. And so it started to evolve into this much more collaborative songwriting process that was really based on a lot more improvisation. Right. And so it sort of started to become its own collaborative <laughs> thing that wasn't you know, no one of us as an individual songwriter could have written those songs. It started to turn into a more of a, of a collaborative compositional process. So I think Worm by Land is a little bit different than what came after it because it, it hadn't really congealed into that approach yet. Yeah, it kind of almost seems like the uh, the preamp, like the Hobbit to your Lord of the Rings or something along those lines, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's kind of there, but kind of prequel. Yeah, it's kind of its own thing. Uh, well, and if I remember right, 
and th- this is a small thing. It has been years, but don't you credit everyone with instruments on the uh, like there, no, there's like individual credits on that one necessarily on, on the small um, thing. It has been years, but don't you credit everyone? With- yeah, on songwriting, we've always just put everybody as songwriter on every song because yeah. you can't really you can't break it, it out. It's just too collaborative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that that's uh, because again, one of the things. Oh yeah, the so the improvisation being kind of written into like part of the DNA of the band, right? Like the, to the fact that you would include yeah. like some of the cooler ones, uh, you know, like the, the, n- as far as I know, there were no bands that were really doing that at the time, but certainly the first time I heard it was like, Oh, that's cool. And like, but it's, you know, it's a cool thing that maybe it's cool for like 30 seconds, not for three minutes, but, <laughs> but, right. but it's, right. it's really cool mm-hmm. for that 30 seconds. And then like you're <laughs> on to the next thing. Yeah. Uh, was, was that something that, I mean, was that like start off like as, as like a lark, or was that just like, oh no, why don't we just throw this stuff in? It'll be it'll be different. It'll well, be cool. I think it, it it was kind of like a byproduct of our compositional process because when we got into more into that mode of writing stuff from improvisations, um, we had this reel to reel tape deck in the practice space that anytime it seemed like something was starting to develop. Brian would turn on the tape deck right. and record stuff. And then and then we had this process where every few months he would distill down all of those tapes into these little bits, you know, the the four percent of all of that that was actually interesting. And he would make these compilation tapes of it, which we called the it was song possibilities, and we, we called it song posse tapes. And so everybody would listen to copies of that to find bits that we could turn into songs. But in the process of listening through that, you know, there's little bits that you hear that is like, that's perfect the way it is. That, right. <laughs> I mean, let's just use that yeah. as it is. And that's kind of how those things ended up on albums. It's like, we like this and we don't think we're going to improve on it by turning it into a song. So let's just put it on the record. Yeah, and, and in some cases, it kind of serves as a palate cleanser. In some cases, it's just like, here's like another crazy thing that like, yeah, it's it's yeah. another two minutes is not going to make this more awesome than it already is. Um, but yeah. but it seemed very deliberate in, in their inclusion and also like when and how they stop, too. Uh, it seemed like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I, I can only imagine. It's like, oh, yeah, then it goes on. And there's some. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Some of those were like <laughs> a 10 minute jam that's, you know, <laughs> down to 44 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like diminishing returns, as they say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like I'm just, I'm hard pressed to think of other bands that would operate that way and include those. But it definitely opened up. Uh, for me, like the idea of like possibilities of like, well, you know, if you're a band that's working collaboratively, you can have like happy accidents, yeah. right? Where, where just yeah. uh, there's just something. It's like, oh, well, that wasn't that wasn't a written bar, but like that's pretty cool. Like, yeah. let's, let's let yeah. people listen yeah. to that, and like, and and not having it be something where including that on the record was accidental at all like it definitely just seemed like part of like your whole ethos to be like well we're this band we do a lot of stuff there's a lot of ideas flying around and sometimes it's going to be shorter than others and that's that's fine you know i I think about like um well you invoked the residence earlier the commercial record right where it's Mm -hmm. like 
the songs are one minute long, one minute long. <laughs> which yeah. is which is astounding because it's like oh you really start thinking about what does and does not constitute a song as far as that goes and, yeah. yeah and you can and you can do a lot i mean ad jingles are a perfect example of that as well mm-hmm. uh so talk to me a bit about tangle you uh that says 89 right mm-hmm. um you kind of what people think of as like the thinking fellers sort of sound is starting to develop there. Uh, Greg, um, I should have mentioned Greg's uh, Greg Freeman was with you real early on. Like he's, yeah. he's yeah. from the beginning, from the very beginning and, as far as recording. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, was it just very clear that like he got what you were doing and that's why you liked, uh, like, working yeah. Out? I mean, we, we met him through mutual friends. We were getting ready to want to record, uh, he was recommended to us from some friends, and we went in and did the Worm by Leonard sessions, and, you know, we had a great time. We liked uh, working with him, liked his approach and his ideas, but also, I mean, it's just, he, he's one of the most personable people you would ever meet. I mean, he's just a really nice guy. And so we really clicked with him, and I don't know, it just when we were ready to record tangle it was like of course we're gonna go back to greg and, and yeah it just wasn't even really a question yeah because i mean the, the last thing you want when you're in a situation like that is someone that like <laughs> doesn't get what you're doing right <laughs> that's like yeah what are you guys up to well <laughs> and i mean i think key to that is he's a very patient man and that was very much needed for us because um i mean we're, we're not assholes. I mean, we're pretty easy to get along with, but because everybody was like contributing to their ideas to the sound, it wasn't like he could work with the main guy from the band. Right. You know, it wasn't like I'm going to work with Ray Davies and, and you know, not sure. listen to the rest of you. We were all, you know, kind of barking out our input on the, the mixes and the, how the song should be. And, you know, he was just extremely patient with dealing with the kind of that cacophony of, um, you know, people yelling out what they wanted to have happen with the song. And, you know, it just, you know, somebody else wouldn't maybe put up with that. Maybe they shouldn't have, but. (laughs) Maybe maybe um, people yelling things and then conflicting things being yelled at the same time and then somehow figuring out. Yeah. yeah. Putting that together is some kind of. uh, cohesive entity which <laughs> which, yeah. which must it, other times are probably easier than others i'm sure but yeah and i think it took us years to kind of really kind of dial back and trust greg and let him really shape the mix i think by the time we got to strangers from the universe we were giving him a lot more leeway in what to bring in what to pull out and in the early days you know we 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 were really trying to control the mix and i think some somewhat to our detriment when you when when did you first start kind of bringing it out to the world at large for touring like on the real like like as 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 far as taking the show on the road so to speak like what was that uh how how early on was that We, we we did a brief tour of the northwest in 88 after the Worm by Leonard cassette came out. That was like a week and a half long. Mm-hmm. And then when Tango came out, we did a couple of weeks in the Southwest. It was kind of a bust in terms of success of a tour. Um, 
But then in the summer of 1990, we did a six-week tour of the U.S., and we spent a lot of time in New York on that tour, and that's when we hooked up with Matador, and things kind of took off from there. Yeah, and that's, uh, well, and that's, uh, like, what, 1990? That was, like, you guys probably were working on stuff that would become on uh, Lovelyville at at that point, I would imagine, right? Yeah. Yeah. did you did you find in those days that it would it would get over live, uh, or did you end up baffling people, or a bit of column A, a bit of bit of column B, like? <laughs> yeah, a little of both. Um, yeah, I think when we got to New York, there was definitely some good reception there. I think there were some people there that got it. Um, you know, if you're in, you know, somewhere in Kansas or Indiana, maybe not so much, but yeah. yeah. But then there's also places that you know, like maybe they'll surprise you too, and that's 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 always oh, nice. totally, yeah. <laughs> like you never definitely. It's you always hope for that, even if it's not, yes. uh, not something that always comes through. Yeah. Uh, well, so then, and, and not to give uh, short shrift to to tangle uh but i think that lovelyville for me is kind of where it sort of seemed like you guys really seemed to coalesce into the creative unit that uh, people think of uh when they when they think of the band um i mean do you think that that was something that was just what you were doing at the time or is that something where you were making like an effort to sort of lean into certain things that you guys did and um and, and kind of figure that part of it out or was it was it just being together for a longer period of time? Yeah, I think I think it's just being together for that. I, I don't recall any, you know, conscious effort to go in a different direction or anything like that. It was just <laughs> what, kind what, of what would the direction be? Yeah, exactly. Inti- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> continual evolution into wherever the hell it's going. I think going. we should do a cover of uh, Green Eyed Lady. Okay, well, sure. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and that's a that's another one that's got like a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of like the, like the smaller ideas and the, the short. Yeah, that one's chock full of those. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you feel like there was any kind of sea change towards like acceptance towards like weirder music from a larger perspective at that point yet, or was that still to come before you know the great nineteen ninety one gold rush? I don't know. I mean, I guess we would just saw it as a continual push forward. I, I don't really remember any particular point in that timeline where suddenly things shifted. I think we were just kind of, kind of plowing through, doing our thing. Well, I mean, the whole there was the whole explosion of grunge and like alternative rock, but. It didn't really have a a whole lot of effect on us because we didn't really know exactly where we fit into that anyway, and we just kind of just kept doing whatever we were doing. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you guys just from instrumentation alone, like you know, you were using like Casio's way before that was like cool. There's like violas and uh, like mandolins and uh, like I mean, there's a lot of non-rock instrumentation being used to make whatever whatever right. you're you making used in, yeah used in ways that 
they they weren't really intended to be used in yeah. which is something especially with any kind of classical instrument I've, I've noticed some people tend to get really upset about that if you use it incorrectly yeah. <laughs> which is like that's okay that's, you know it's an instrument right you can make you can do whatever you want with it yeah <laughs> uh but it's it occurs to me also that you know you're using all these like uh i think they call it baroque right baroque instruments to make like cool cool weird like hooks and uh and things and there just weren't a lot of bands that were that were doing that. Like it was sort of like it was alternative in the truest sense of <laughs> what that is meant to be, not what it eventually became as a <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> as a yeah. thing. Uh, and you know, th- there's stuff that kind of almost uh, would would be would be fine on the cooler parts of like a Yes record, maybe, but then also stuff that like uh you know shares. Shares DNA with like things like Sonic Youth were doing and stuff along those lines. Uh, oh yeah, and then you also, I had I had the CD of that, and that is uh, um, was it the Crowded Diaper? I think. Yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> yeah, the extra CD tracks. <laughs> what what could, could you? I, I've wanted for years to know, and this this is obviously my opportunity. Uh, what, what was the the thought process with the Crowded Diaper? Well, the CDs were still pretty new then, and like. It's like, oh, if you put out a CD, you put extra stuff on it that yeah. didn't fit on the vinyl. So it was like, okay, are we going to put something extra on the CD? And it was just the initial CD. We turned that into Crowded Diaper and uh, just picked out a bunch of extra stuff to put on there. I don't know really how much thought process <laughs> went into that, but um, our our band humor is... Um, pretty immature and scatological. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, because it's there, there what there was a thing at the time like, look, you got all this space. You gotta fill it up with some yeah, more stuff. Uh, yeah, all this space. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> more is better, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And like every yeah, it got a way where like everybody started doing I mean there was at one point like I think the mid nineties got even more absurd where it's like, okay, this should be like two records. It's enough. Like it's, <laughs> but yeah, the idea that you could fit all that in, like more more songs than you could on a record. Was, yeah. uh, that, that was a big Well, yeah, changer. for decades, that was that hard limit yeah. of the fidelity of the, of the LP. You didn't have that anymore. This is, um, uh, Loveville's got a lot of, uh, like a lot of cool, like weird samples and things like that. I'm thinking like the seals and stuff that, the, <laughs> that are in there. Uh, 91, Sampling technology was not where it is at now. Is probably a charitable thing to say. <laughs> uh, so, what what was the process for getting that stuff? Well, I mean, some of that stuff it wasn't samples. It was just like uh, we wanted to add some sounds to this, like that. I think that song was more Glee that those were on. Yeah, more and, Glee. Yeah. You know, I think I taped some stuff off of some. BBC sound effects library or something like that. And, you know, that's probably where the seals came from. <laughs> right. You just brought it in, told Greg here, put this in on, you know, this particular stretch here. Uh, yeah. Did you have a thought towards trying to find unique instruments on its own like as yeah i mean we were always interested in the kind of a kind of a 
varied palette of different sounds on a song. And I mean, you can do a lot with guitars and bass and drums, but you know, why not add in some other stuff that sounds a little bit different and, you know, so, you know, on one of the tours in a, some thrift store, Brian found a mandolin and a viola and I had found a banjo and was like, what can we do with, to fuck with this and, you know, make it fit into our sound and, you know, put a pickup on it and run some weird effects on it and yeah. then play it like however the hell we want to play it and just see what happens. And it's just all part of that. Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess it's maybe it's from some other weird form of ADD of like not <laughs> getting bored with things that sound the same and just like wanting to try a bunch of other sounds that we can throw in the mix and just just trying to vary the palette in you know all the different ways that you can come up with yeah one well, you know it, it, it works out well i mean you have some pretty unique songs on this one like you have like you know four o'clock or two is a that's a that's a ripper that's a you know we mentioned more glee sinking boats like there's, there's a bunch of like uh uh, I mean, that, that, that that melody in uh, sinking boats is is hilariously dissonant is probably the best way to put it like it's yeah and even with something like that where we were using pretty much standard in, instrumentation but still messing around with it like i i played a side drum kit on that along with paul and hugh's guitar was in a different tuning that kind of gave it this weird dissonant fat sound and so you know and i think that might be like one of the very first ones where brian started playing the viola um yeah yeah i think you're right yeah yeah, so whether it's new instruments or just like adding in okay we're gonna have two people play percussion on this instead of one like just mixing it up i can't which i'm sure to some fans you know in a live environment was may have been frustrating because we were always switching around always like, lost songs <laughs> between songs and, right um you know but but it gives you that you know i think the payoff is worth it yeah you know i'm a dasher to the contrabass now okay all right <laughs> right on yeah <laughs> you know like i guess whatever comes out of it sounds good it works yeah uh the well and and i mean if i remember right i think it was. I, th- I think you guys were the first one band I heard using Optagon, if, if, if I remember correctly. Which, which I didn't even understand what it was for the longest time. But I was, I was like, that's neat sounding. That's like strange. It's such a cool instrument. Yeah, there's I mean, a, it, that's a crazy history behind it. Like it's 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 nuts. Yeah. Uh, and where like where did you pick that up? Like where did was that just around? Was that like a thrift store thing or what was the? I had a friend that picked one up at a thrift store. I think she paid like five dollars for it. That's amazing. And um, you know, let me play it. I and and eventually ended up. She just gifted it to me. Um, but and then somebody else gave me discs. You know, the the discs that you put in it are these like acetate looking clear optical disc yeah it's so crazy and it spins around in there and so like i don't know if you're familiar with the mellotron it was kind of similar but it was based on um tapes there'd be like tape loops for every key of some instrument 
and when you hit the key it's playing a tape loop of a bassoon or something and yeah. so you that's how you got that weird sound on the elatron but the octagon was based on a optical technology right. which is similar to uh the soundtrack on a film like the edge of the film is where the soundtrack is read from an optical reader and so they use that but it's on this disc that spins around and it has all these different sounds and also like different chord vamps that are on that yeah yeah percussion stuff and you got little buttons on it that you know put the reader on a different part of the disc that, to get this different chord progression or a different sound and it's really cool sounding and they they had i don't dozens of different discs for different yeah styles. and they had different names like i remember one was like yeah. latin, latin fever or something latin <laughs> fever big top marching band <laughs> right, yeah. guitar in three four time and stuff like that <laughs> so you swap these out and you get all these different sounds and it's amazing but it's also incredibly temperamental like it just the the discs was like start to slow down and yeah, so the music yeah. would get slow and uh you know you had to kind of like hold parts of it to keep it running at the same pace so it is definitely not something that you could rely on in a live right uh, a road ready instrument yeah exactly. yeah all <laughs> <laughs> things like flying apart basically not yeah 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 you know like it, it, it's such a it's it's so funny because if you think about uh when that was created uh you know the idea that there could be something that versatile that was, you know, designed for creativity. Like now it's like, like, like my perfect example is like, if you have like, like Lego sets, you used to be like, here's your box of Legos kid. And now it's like, oh, here's the thing it's supposed to look like. And here's the instructions for making the thing. And, um, it occurs to me that that, that was, a, that was a time in America where they were like, oh, let's just, let's throw this at kids can uh, have a good time with this. They can, uh, you know, make big organ noises or something. And it's just, this is not an approach you see that much anymore. Everything's very much like, walled gardens and uh um you know controlled fun right <laughs> so <yeah>. to speak <laughs> and uh, i i guess that's more of just like a speech than than a question but like i i think i think it's <laughs> well uh, i think when it first came out it was like a, a parlor thing like yeah you know we're at a party and you don't really have to know how to play the piano you can just sit down at this thing and you can make a song out of it and everybody can sing along or you know something like wasn't that wasn't there like but, another there was like another it was the step up from that it was like the professional grade version of the app and it was called it started with an o2 it was like um uh, it was mm. and it was not nearly as popular but it had the same and it had, yeah i don't know about that one same fidelity limitations but you know bigger and more expensive i can't remember anyway whatever i'll, I'll hear about it like you know a year from now um i and it's it just occurs to me that it's such a unique sound, right? And and, and it's um, yeah, yeah. You, every time you hear it, if you know, you know. Otherwise, it's like, what is that? What is that about? <laughs> like, what is what is that thing? Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, it it sounds like it's from an old like B movie. Yeah, the soundtrack, like when the projector is like kind of like screwing not up a little going bit at, this, <laughs> at a regular pace, and it's yeah. kind of feel to it, which is so great. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a very very unique instrument, and uh, you know I I, I would like I, to the point that when I saw it, I'm like oh they got one of those thinking fellers things. I don't even know what it was called. So I was just <laughs> like, yeah, it's one of those things. Uh, oh, you know, <laughs> I I briefly mentioned Green Eyed Lady as an aside. Um, yeah, what what what? Why did you 
include a Sugarloaf song on on that record? That was just something fun to do. Um, it just sort of happened. Um, I think I, uh, what I recall is I went home for Christmas and I was like laying up in bed in my mom's house with the AM radio on and that song came on and I thought that would be great to cover. So when I got back to California, I did a, like a four track yeah. um, cover of it just as a, as a goof kind of, and um, Brian really liked it and suggested that we throw it on the Lovelyville yeah. album. So, yeah. It's and then we later learned to play it live. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kind of, it's, kind of became a, a thing that you're known for a little bit, you know, why not? Uh, the, oh, um, what's, uh, you also have the, oh God, what, it's, a, it's the, it's the, it's the thing where those, those dudes are um, yelling at each other. Um, oh, uh, uh, Raymond and Peter. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> was it? Oh, uh, shut up little man. Right. That's, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which is funny. Cause now I think people know, but that, that was sort of like, found found audio esoteria for a very yeah long time. that that <laughs> whole thing kind of blew up you know after yeah. that but at that time was very nascent thing um we knew somebody in uh, i uh, i guess did you say you're from wisconsin i i'm from oakland but i live in wisconsin okay yeah we knew somebody in, in madison um who met the guy that um uh, recorded those tapes oh, man. he was their neighbor and uh so got a copy sent it out to us we were like floored by it and um yeah how could you not be that's a, I know. <laughs> <it's> amazing <Yeah. laughs> and then we started sharing it with you know a lot of people in in yeah. in california but um then it kind of i don't know really spun out of control and got uh sort of viral you know before the before the internet, it yeah. was a kind of a weird tape, viral tape thing that happened. Yeah. Did they eventually make a documentary about it too, or something? Yeah, it's been like documentary. They're... There was yeah. like a, a Broadway show or well, something. There was a Broadway like show. That. That's amazing. I don't wow. know if it was on Broadway, but there's definitely has been you know theatrical presentations of it and <laughs> that's, that's all hilarious. kinds of stuff. That's like I know there was like some This American Life episode that had it as well. I was like, I know what that is. Anyone that tours knows what that is. <laughs> Uh, well, okay. So, last thing with Lovieville, um, you know, again before the, the aforementioned crowded diaper, you got nothing solid. Which I, there's so many, there's there's so much going on on that song. That there, there's, yeah. there's <laughs> you, what, did you try to place a bet with how many instruments you could like throw in there? I mean, like, what, like <laughs> it's it's pretty wild. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We that we we were playing that song and it had it goes through the same thing five times, yeah. three of which have vocals and the other two were instrumental. And we kind of, kind of like, what if we added other instruments to those sections Yeah, and started like kind of like counting down the different people that we knew that played like woodwinds and brass and stuff. I was like, let's just that, invite them all down to the studio and just see what happens. So I think that's where that, that came about. It happened. It happened. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and yeah, if you had a CD, <laughs> that, was, that was not the end at all. But uh, yeah, there, there's a, yeah. It, it makes for a maximalist <laughs> exunta uh, from that. Uh, all right. So after that, you got Mother of All Saints. So it's mm -hmm. nine, it's 92. 
the entire landscape of independent music is like starting to kind of change around. Was that something that w- were you guys just head down on your own thing? Was that noticeable? Uh, what, what, what was the mindset with the band at that time as far as the world at large? I think we were just head down on our own thing. I mean, we had signed with Matador in 90 or 91 for a three record deal. Right. So we were just like, that's what we're doing now. Um, you know, the fact that there were other labels that were starting to look around at bands, we weren't really paying attention to that at that point. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like it really had much of an impact on what we were doing. Yeah, well, it's not like you, not like you guys were chasing friends. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is that's a dense record. Uh, it's a dense record yeah. amongst a band that made almost nothing but dense records. But um, yeah, so, some of the some of the production is so like densely packed and uh, like it almost requires you to give it the most like what the first time I heard it, I was like, I don't, I don't know if I like this record. And then I actually gave it like a very active listen. Like, Oh no, there's a bunch of cool stuff here, but I think it, it does not reward the casual listener as much as you have to commit to it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, you're almost like daring the listener to like dig deeper. Right. <laughs> it's a dare. Yeah. Uh, but but that I mean even though you know like whatever be it like muddy or or, or noisy or, or crazy or whatever there's I mean I, I think that's a fantastic uh, that's a fantastic record you got a gentleman well and I think some you of the know? early songs on the beginning part of that record are are a little bit more easy to yeah, to get easy into to get it's just yeah. if you want to like really get through the whole thing you <laughs> you you do have to have a, a little bit more of a commitment. You gotta you gotta strap in, so to speak. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that's a good and and um, it got some some great stuff on there too. Like I'm thinking, I'm thinking like Hornet's Heart and uh, you know, there, there's a. I mean, everybody. I think everybody's kind of hitting it, hitting things real hard on uh, on that one. Like there's a lot of unorthodox hooks in there and. I mean, again, it doesn't sound like you know there's there's anything remotely compromised. It just sounds like you like used. Well, maybe I should ask: is is there? Did you? Did, how long did it take you to record that record? Was that was that like a record that you were still kind of rushing through to get to a tour, or was that like uh, did you spend more time with it? Uh, I don't really recall. I just know that um, we had gotten to a point. We did a couple tours in '91. And Lovelyville had just come out, but we had written a lot of new songs since then. So, like, we were doing all these songs on tour that were post Lovelyville, and it kind of felt like God, we're we're like way out ahead of ourselves here, and we wanted to like kind of get caught up. So right. it was like, I think that's why we were like, okay, let's let's put out a double album and just get everything out of the way yeah, and yeah. then start over from there. We, we got to have someplace to put tuning notes. You know? Yes. <laughs> Let's get some, the, the, the public has to hear it. Yes. <laughs> but I, but there's, I mean, there is excitement uh, in the record. Like as, again, as much as it can be like a daunting listen, I mean, you have, um, like tell me hive uh yeah i mean a lot of people say that's their favorite record and yeah it's 
just depends, I guess, on what your what your hook is into it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's uh, so. Yeah, that was a double LP or mm-hmm. single CD, if you will. Uh, <laughs> did you have a um, did what was the thought process with the sequencing on that one? Because again, it does get like more and more daunting as time goes on. It seems like like they, it's almost yeah. it's almost like three uh, movements is not exactly correct, but three movements. Yeah, the third side is very much very heavy on the, you know, low fidelity practice space improv stuff. Um, yeah, I I don't recall if there was like <laughs> an overarching philosophy of how to sequence that. Um, I don't know how it turned out the way it did. Well, and and you know, you start off with. Um gentleman's lament which is like one of the you know it's, it's, it's practically a beatles song compared to some of the stuff that comes later you know like it's, <laughs> it's pretty straightforward <laughs> uh and this is another one that uh, if i remember right i think it's like a french horn on here there's uh there's all kinds of banjo um what, what's the thing um i think brian played it's like the uh it's bowed. It's uh, do you know what I'm talking about? It's like um, oh, airhu. Yeah, yeah, airhu, airhu. Okay. At the beginning of Hornet's Heart. Yeah, that's yeah, that's. That which when we did it live, we did vocally, but on the recording, it's an airhu. Yeah, we're gonna do like bring that thing in just to play, play like 30 <laughs> seconds of a song. Great. Oh yeah, good use of our space. Yeah. Band. yeah. Well, it got stolen. Like he had it sitting on his table, and there was a window open in his kitchen. That was, you know, the table was arm's length from the window uh-huh. and somebody w- reached into the window and stole the air hoof, <laughs> oh, which wow. was probably, you know, he probably picked it up at a flea market for five bucks or yeah, something. Yeah, sure. It wasn't, but, God, air hoof. It was kind of a weird thing to steal. Yeah. Is nothing sacred? I mean, geez, like, good luck for the resale on that. Like, what is this? What are you trying to sell me? What is this? <laughs> I don't understand what this is. Uh yeah, yeah. So then, and you got a lot of wow. That's that's that's. So I guess that ends that as as an instrument, right? Yeah, that was the end of the year. <laughs> uh, you know, big big moody record. I think there's a lot of um, th- there's a lot of uh, big mood uh, pieces in here. Um, mm-hmm. There's definitely like, did you feel like this was just like where you guys were at at the time? Did you have any any thought process towards like what came before, not wanting to repeat yourself or anything along those lines, or was it just a natural evolution? I think it's just here's the songs we have that we haven't recorded. Sounds in a running theme here, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and it's uh, you know there there's there's a lot, and this this is another one that excels with the the little mini. Uh, the mini songlets and, and mm-hmm. things and things along those lines. Um, I think a lot of times when people use the word psychedelic, they think of it to mean one thing and certainly use a shorthand to describe one kind of music. But I think it's almost like a psychedelic kind of record in a, maybe the truer sense of that term uh, personally. Yeah, I can see that as much as everything's very composed, you know, it's just like the way it all fits together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's you have like high, compact, highly melodic counter melodies and things like that, and then you have um, really like bizarre like rehearsal jams and stuff, like you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> like almost like you know coming from like the beef art world or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, we always love that stuff. You know, I mean, 
I, I know there there are people that wonder why we put some of that stuff on our records and yeah. I understand that. But to us it it's it's not like a fuck you listen to this <laughs> and let's see what they'll eat up, you yeah, know. It's not yeah. like that at all. It's those are some of our favorite things and and maybe it won't translate to listeners. You know, you can never tell that, but um we like a range of fidelities you know some of that stuff that was recorded on the ghetto blast or on a you know cheap cassette tape like to us just sounds really great and it's got that condenser so, that like naturally yeah that condenser yeah. kicks in and it's just sometimes it sounds amazing yeah um and so it's like okay we're gonna put on this record the things that we like the best and that we think sound great and you know we hope people respond to it but you know, maybe they won't, but it's just we have to represent what what we like. Yeah, and again, you guys really had created your own universe of 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 creativity, and it's it's going to attract the weirdos. It's going to attract, right? But it's it's uh, right. <laughs> and when I, when I mean that as a compliment, like I think that that's yeah, a, yeah, you know, yeah. take it as such. Yeah, I, I can't think of Thinking Fellers trying to sound like any band necessarily, and uh, even being successful. It just seems like it would be. It's not what you do, right? (laughs) Which is fine. I mean, there's there's plenty of bands that get practically interchangeable. You know, switch out the singer, and it could be, you know, okay, right? Sounds like this now, okay. Uh, So, reaction from Mother of All Saints. Did you did you you know? Did you feel like you guys were? It was still building at that point, and uh, things were going the way you wanted to go. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when we put that out, we went out um, to support it on tour. And that was a tour we did with Sun City Girls, which is fantastic. It's a good bill. Yeah, um, it's a good that, double bill. It was a, <laughs> such a great tour. Um, we had a lot of fun and uh, got to see those guys play every night. And <clears throat> they did something different every night. And yeah. It was phenomenal. Um, and yeah, the, you know. Interest was building, slowly building. And so, you know, over time, we'd get bigger and bigger crowds at at the shows on tour. And so it just seemed like it was just, you know, continually kind of slowly building itself up. Yeah. And so then that's so then enter, you know, a couple of years later, um, what is. I don't. I, I think it's probably safe to say it's one of your more popular records, which is "Strangers from the Universe," right? I mean, that's um, mm-hmm. well. Oh, but, but I should say before that, Mosh and the Bishops, right? Uh, wait, am I getting the? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk. Since those are since those two have been are in the in the reissues, uh, let's talk admonishing the Bishops. Um, solid yeah. EP. I mean, like real, like you know, all the songs are real uh, focused. It seems. Yeah, I mean. It was recorded on that tour that we did with Sun City Girls. We had like three days off, and we were in Chicago, and we'd arranged to um, do a little recording with Bob Weston, who was yes. based there and um, working with Albini at his studio. And, um, you know, like I said, we, we had all that stuff that we wanted to get out on Mother of All Saints, and we kind of did the big album and kind of got caught up on that. We had these four songs that we were playing and it was like, okay, let's, let's just record those and see 
see what comes of it. We'll, you know, we'll do it in this different context than what we have been doing. And so we did it, you know, in like three days and, you know, finished, wrapped it up and ran off to play our show in Chicago and then continued on the tour. And when we got home, it was like, well, what, what should we do with these songs? We kind of got to this point where things were getting a little tentative, like everybody kind of wanted a break mm. and we didn't really know what we were going to do next. So, you know, I think kind of as a reaction to mother of all saints, which was this sort of huge bloated thing. Sprawling opus. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sprawling opus. Thank you. That's, that's a nicer way to put it. Um, let's just put out this, you know, really concise little thing. And um, as is, and, and then we don't have to worry about what we're doing next. We'll figure that out later. And, um, we approached Matador because, you know, it wasn't really within the contract that we had with them, but they, they agreed to put it out as a separate thing. And that's how that came about. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of a cool little, um, time capsule of its own. Yeah. I think it holds up. I mean, like I, I listened to it this morning and I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is really good. Like I'm, I'm really interested to see the, uh, how the reissue turned out. Because uh, it's sort of like, I think if you weren't already a fan, like it maybe flew under the radar. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, there was also the thing of EPs not being as serious as LPs uh, mm -hmm. that nobody cares about now anymore. Nobody cares about that. But it, it, that that was definitely a thing for the longest time, which is a shame because I think like some of my favorite bands have incredible EPs. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like that can be a proving ground for bigger ideas or it can be the other way around like you said where you're coming, coming mother of all saints and they're like oh it's just, let's just let's just get down to business on this one mm -hmm. uh but that's a i mean that one rips like i think that's uh four songs you mm -hmm. know like um you know, none of them are uh i think like one of them's like three minutes or something but like they're you know they, they they do what they do and i think that that's a it's a it's a great ep and i think it's it's a good part of your history so i was excited to see if that's one of the ones that was being reissued because i think that's a it's almost like a joiner record like it kind of joins uh, that yeah. um that in the next one at least from my perspective uh so that's 93 so yeah. then then you got strangers from the universe which again or the aka the pink one <laughs> uh, and you know as far as idea wise it's, it's no less shorter than ideas than mother of all saints but it's definitely got it, it seems like the the ruckus and the low finest is um it's, it's kind of seems like it's channeled differently like i think of things like uh well we talked extensively about the octagon right cup of dreams mm -hmm. and, and that being kind of like just like a slowly like winding moody like weird pop song uh really and it's on the same record as you know my pal the tortoise which <laughs> sounds nothing like it and um you know it's it, it's not like it's any less kind of uh, all over the place is the wrong word than any of the others but there's something about it that you know whether it's the sequencing whether it's what you're choosing to focus on it seems like it kind of uh, drew in people that maybe were little more yeah. thought of a little more daunting beforehand maybe is the best way to put it uh, yeah so, i so definitely that, think it was the most cohesive sounding 
record to date uh, at that point. And uh, I, I think that was, I don't think that was an accident. I think that, um, you know, like I alluded to before, over the years, we kind of got better and better about um, relinquishing some of our control in the in the production to Greg Freeman. Yeah. And uh, by the time we did that album, um, we really had a, a different approach. Like when it got time to do the mix, basically we, for each song, we would say, okay, Greg, here's kind of some general parameters of what we're looking for. Um, and then we would leave for like two hours and then come back to the studio and he would say, okay, what do you think of this? And then, you know, we'd give him feedback and tweak some things, but it wasn't like five of us standing over the mixing board, <laughs> like, the you know, grabbing knobs and things. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Turn, turn, turn the hi-hat up. Oh, God. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think because, because there was, you know, one person in control of that process, it became a little bit more cohesive in how it ended up sounding. And, you know, in my opinion, you know, for the better, I think, I think that helped, it helped the sound of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's one that, that people tend to come back to a lot. Um, and it's not that it's all like easy listening or something. I mean, you still have, uh, right. <laughs> the, the operation, right? I mean, that's like, you know, gnarly. It's very dense. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's a, it's a gnarly song. And I, 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 I dig it. Also ends on like, if you, if you listen to lyrics, if you're a lyrics person, noble experiment is a kind of a bummer of a, a of an outro, but I kind of love it at the same time. <laughs> um, also, all too relevant still. Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> Which, but it, but it's it's something that I think it gets across your worldview and humor, and relentless creativity, but makes like a very much a like a nice landing zone for folks. And mm -hmm. and I think depending on what people are into on that record, they can um, you know go back backwards or forwards and sort of figure it out. But it also you know I think it's a very cohesive record. I think it it's just nicely sequenced as well. Um, oh, thank you. Do you was there a lot of discussion about the sequencing? Because that I mean, I, I think it's that that's a record. That's a record that's a different record entirely if you sequence it differently. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't recall, but I mean, sequencing was always you know was always pretty intentional. So I'm sure there was a lot of discussion about it, but I don't really recall details of it, but. Um, did yeah. you know Tortoise was going to go first? Did you, did you think that that was going to? It be seemed good? like the logical starter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I, I could see like, I, I could see a, a you know version of this record they do Tortoise and then Cup of Dreams or something, right? And then, but mm -hmm. that's a different, that's a wildly different kind of record. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I think we wanted to start it off, you know, upbeat with my Palatortas and the socket's pretty upbeat too. Yeah, socket's great. Even though, yeah. even though lyrically, maybe it's not that upbeat. You're talking about getting electrocuted. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's got a <laughs> da, 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 da. yeah. It's, like a, it's a bit of a bop, yeah. you know, yeah. which is what one normally does not yeah. think of when they're getting electrocuted. But that's fine. <laughs> but then I think after those first two songs, it kind of gets a little bit moodier and a little bit darker, and just sort of flows in that direction. 
Yeah, because it is still a moody record, but it's a different kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, moody record. Um, yeah. And it's funny because when I first saw it, I was like, oh, it's pink. Like, that was literally the first thing I thought of was with the album cover. Like, I just, I, I used to have a <laughs> aversion to the color pink. Uh, but then afterwards, I'm like, oh, no, that's perfect. That's the perfect color for this record to be. <laughs> like, I, I very much corrected my, my behavior and initial uh, reaction to that. Uh, because also, especially like with uh, with the album art, you know, like it's that it was a different kind of different kind of looking record than like Mother of All Saints or uh, La Viva or anything. Not yeah. that you guys had like you know a specific thing necessarily that you, that you were doing, but um, it's also like, what does the artwork for this look like? I don't know. Uh, so the, <laughs> you you got those. Um, like light bulbs, right? They're like painted light bulbs. Yeah, yeah. It's a um, very old friend of ours. Actually, Anne and I went to high school with him. Um, our friend John Frentress, who's an artist, he started painting faces on light bulbs, um, and we were really into them. So he just gave us a bunch of his light bulbs, and you know, <laughs> we had a bunch of them uh, photographed and. That's where that album cover came from. Yeah, it's it's and it's again, despite my initial aversion to it being the color pink, like I think it's it's like I couldn't think of that record being with any other album title. Like the it's it's so like strange because you know it's little faces in on light bulbs, yeah. which is so, <laughs> so strange and unique and cool, you know. <laughs> uh, and there's um, oh, uh, piston in the shaft is on that one as well. That's that's mm-hmm. another that's a that's another great song um you know another weirdo pop song in its way uh did you did any of any of the stuff around this time like seem like it didn't fit necessarily or did it all kind of feel like okay this is all very much in this mischievous sort of weird pop record that we're making Mm -hmm. because because I think that like I I could see it going either way (laughs) I don't recall um I mean, again, you know, it's like we go into the studio and what do we have ready to record now? We record it. Yeah. And then, you know, the the practice-based recordings that we add to it, obviously there's some intention there of what, what you're going to include and how it fits in with what you've recorded. Um, I guess the one, the one uh, variable there was uh, Noble Experiment was – brought in on the very last day of the recording sessions and we hadn't planned to do it, but I, I had written that song on the Optagon and the, the last day was like, I brought the Optagon in and like, what do you think about adding this to the record? And so we just kind of, you know, I showed Anne the melody and, um, you know, we just recorded it really quickly. So that one was kind of added into the mix at the very last minute. But the rest of the uh, rest of the album, I think, was just the songs that we had ready to record at the time. So, um, I mean, obviously, you're evolving to a certain point in your you know progression. So, you know, whatever common themes are going into the songs that you write are, you know, make them cohesive in that way. But it wasn't like, you know, here's 20 songs and in here are the eight songs that we're going to take out of that and put on the album. It wasn't like that. It was just kind of whatever was ready to go. It's funny you mentioned that because I, I absolutely could not think of 
Cup of Dreams without that Optagon intro. Like they're they're just so inextricably linked in, in my mind. Uh-huh. So like to have that to hear that that was like a last minute edition is uh, that that's pretty astounding. Like that's I mean did, was it? Well, the Noble Experiment was the Cup of Dreams. Um, that also has the Optagon. Yeah. That was that was a little bit more deliberate. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, noble experiment too. I mean, like again, like the, the, I think that to me that works tonally as a as a last song mm-hmm. because of the usage of the Optigon, which has a sort of almost you know alien, otherworldly sort of element to yeah, it. Anyway. End of the world kind of. Yeah, sound exactly. It's got big end of the world energy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, good game, everybody. It's over now. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, you certainly tried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the oh yeah, and I, I I I totally I totally forgot to mention on um one one of the earlier ones one of, one of my favorite things I ever heard listening to one of your records. A roommate said that sounds like a jazz band falling down its stairs, <laughs> and I thought that was amazing. So I needed I needed to share that. That's a, a very good observation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So all these years later, I'm finally getting to mention that. <laughs> uh, so okay, so the vinyl for these, and, and we'll get to we'll get to uh, Bob as well. But I, um, I, we should mention because one of the reasons you're talking to me is Bulbous Monocle is releasing Demolishing the Bishops and Thinking Fellows Union, and so that's Bulbous, B U L B O U S dash Monocle uh, dot Bandcamp dot com Bulbous Monocle dot com um, what what do you think? Are there any songs that win most improved award or anything along that uh, for this this new version of it for this new physical release? Yeah, I think so. I mean, on admonishing bishops, um, I think that one had a little bit more extreme remastering than strangers, um, and you know, like I said, I think one of the one of the things that we were trying to do there is kind of bring out the vocals a little bit more. Yeah. Um, definitely on Undertaker, I think the vocals are brought up on that. Um, so I think that's interesting. On Strangers from the Universe, um, the ones that strike me as more more different from the original are near the end of the record. Um, and the, the one that's really striking to me is The Operation, which, you know, is so dense and uh, so much like low frequency stuff going on in there and a lot of dissonant detuned guitars and um it's very soupy um and i think he did a really masterful job of kind of like just clarifying the different parts of that in a way that makes it a little bit more I, i don't know what the adjective to use for it is but it's just there's a little bit more clarity, I guess, to, to how it sounds. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, like you mentioned, that's a, the the downside to having so many ideas and sounds and things flying around yeah. is that yeah. you know you, you can kind of like not see the forest for the trees at some point. Yeah, right? yeah, uh, yeah, and I think that it's it's something where. There's something about this one too. I think that it's very—it's not the other. The others were like not cohesive, but there's a very cohesive sound to it somehow. Yeah. Whereas some—I mean, some of the earlier records, like the almost jarring nature of like you know, 
not just the fidelity transitions, but um, mood, sound, et cetera, et cetera. That, that was like baked in. That was like part of the cake. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, something like Lovelyville is just like it's whiplash all the way through. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing. It's just, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's the, the detour is the highway, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I feel like there's kind of a deft and like almost lightness to this, even when it's like not light at all to this record mm-hmm. that, that makes it a real uh, compelling repeated listen. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's deceptive in that way, I think, because yeah. there is still a, a lot of kind of darkness floating around in it, but it's it's lighter to, yeah, to pull you in a little bit more. And it is also funny because if you think about the fact that, like, when this came out, it's, you know, didn't sound like anything else and, you know, still doesn't sound like anything else by the same token. And it's, um, you know, I think that speaks a lot to you guys' credit that, that it's... Uh, yeah, I was in high school when I heard this. <laughs> right now, I was, I was like, "Well, what are these guys up to? This is crazy." <laughs> uh, and and I think it's still for a certain type of person that's that's going to seek out the relentlessly creative and the people that are willing to go for the big swings. Like it, it's perfect for that um, that exact type of person. And uh, I'm excited to for folks to have this. Uh, I never had it on vinyl. You know, that was a CD era. I never. I was like, vinyl, a record. <laughs> <laughs> what can i say <laughs> but but like i'm you know i'm I'm psych- psyched to pick up a copy myself and i think that this is um when i think of like a cool record to put on which again requires mm-hmm. active listening like it's it's i could i could absolutely see this like being like in the upper echelon for that um cool so yeah go buy that i guess but <laughs> <laughs> uh any uh, was uh gerard cool with uh this being reissued like yeah no, no yeah he's been very cool about it yeah yeah i think he pre-ordered his his own copy so. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> fantastic fantastic i have no reason to think he wouldn't be but uh yeah uh, you, know, you know you never know um well, and I and I don't want so so. All right, so before we move on, is there anything that, on Strangers from the Universe that, that we didn't cover? Um, you know, I, I would I, I'd go through and do a song by song with you, but uh, we don't have we don't have all night, and we, we still yeah. have a, yeah, another think... killer record that I think is actually wild, wild underrated uh, in, in the catalog, um, and that's blowing past a couple of those EPs too. Uh, so, anything more with the Strangers from the Universe, or do you feel like that's that's enough? No, I think so. Good. Nothing. Nothing for a while, couple couple '90s EPs, but then 2001, you have the audaciously named Bob Dinners and Larry Noodles present Tubby Turner's Celebrity Avalanche, which, <laughs> if it's not the album that has the longest name by the band with the longest name, it's certainly going to be in contention. Yeah, it's up there for sure. Which uh, may ask the question that, like Charles Dickens, were you guys getting paid by the word? <laughs> <laughs> kidding uh i i think that this that's a great record uh you know i was i was really into the band at the time and i was like what there's a new thinking fellers union record like is this sort of yet we had no people hadn't heard from you in a while yeah we yeah had been a while i mean we did after strangers we put out i hope it lands like i guess a couple years later and then right after we supported that um, we decided to stop touring. 
Right. So that kind of just like slowed everything down and we, we didn't really break up, but it's like, okay, we're not, we're just, we're all going back to our jobs and lives and, and, you know, we'll do this kind of on the side. And so if, if you don't have any tour coming up or anything like that, there's not really a lot of impetus to like push something along. So we right. just worked on it um, a little bit here and there and dribs and drabs for like five years. And when we finally had enough stuff done that to f- fill up an album, um, that's when we put that out. And that was kind of like the end of any kind of active involvement at that point. I mean, do you feel, but it also does, it doesn't feel like there's, it doesn't feel like, all right, that's it, y'all. You know, like any, yeah. <laughs> any kind of mission statement along those lines. It definitely, like, has yeah. the sort of reverence and, uh, you know, the all, all of the – I mean, there's just plenty, like, little – like, there's, like, with that blues riff thing that uh, that's in there, uh, which is just like, all right, yeah, okay, they're doing the thing. Yeah, okay. Um, and there's, like, a lot of uh, – real you know classic thinking feller stuff there like i think anyone that likes the other records uh would find a lot to love there but yeah do you think think that like not touring kind of made it just kind of uh change the change the immediacy of it uh yeah i think so i think so i mean we were more deliberate with it and I don't know. There was no deadlines, so yeah, that has to change it in some way. Um, you're just doing a little bit here and there, so it's it. These songs were kind of developing over a longer period of time, and I think that 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 it has to change how they come out. I don't really know how to, you know, articulate what that is, but it, it, I think it definitely did change the the nature of it a little bit. But it's also like it can't be a comeback record if it didn't go away, too. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were playing shows here and there throughout that period. You yeah. know, we'd play local shows. You know, yeah, I would see you in the Bay Area. Someone would, you know, fly us out to Louisiana for three nights or something, you know, something like that. We, we did things here and there. It wasn't completely, you know, stopped playing live, but it was very much scaled back. And there's a lot of, well, I mean, God, like the, the <laughs> another clip, you know, that's on there when that's a, mm-hmm. that, that's a, that's a ripper, um, mm-hmm. too relevant. Um, and then you got like a snow cone. That's kind of like a cool, like almost mother of all saints sort of right, one, yeah. one with all the syncopated stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, and then, like, was it Holy Ghost? It's got all like the weird time signatures with uh, the viol- the, yeah. the violins, yeah. just like rrr, rrr. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Yes. <laughs> uh, and that's the one that's got the uh, it's got the song about your van, right? The the, the ninety one Dodge van too. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a slowed down version of, or like lazy version of the same riff from another clip that's that's right and we were just kind of fucking around in the studio and playing it a different way and greg turned on the tape machine yeah and um caught that and then you know and added those lyrics to it 
it's just yeah i mean if anything that's sort of the only thing on the record that that's kind of like okay we're winding down now it's right yeah kind of had that 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 um that sense to it but it, it certainly didn't seem like that at the time it was just like oh there's a new thinking Forge record great you know mm-hmm. like nobody like yeah. thought too hard about it <laughs> Yeah. And again, maybe that's living in the Bay Area and like, you know, knowing that you guys still were playing now and again, and maybe you seem less mm-hmm. less crazy than if you're in like Kansas or something along the right. lines. Um Yeah, I mean how, how do you how, I mean, how do you feel about that record? How do you feel as, as that being like the last the last full length? I like it. I think it's you know, I think it stands up pretty well. I mean, it does have a little bit different feel. Yeah. Um but yeah. I think we got to kind of try out some some other stuff um, just because of that more deliberative process. And we, I think we recorded in two or three different studios with that. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was kind of a good way to kind of wrap things up, I guess. Was there an idea that without there being like music being created that the idea of it continuing on as like a live act just wasn't really something that you were super interested in. And the reason why I asked, cause I know you did the, the 10 years later, you did the Altamars parties. Yeah. Uh, which well, by the time, <laughs> by the time, uh, Bob dinners came out, um, Jay had already moved away from the Bay area. Yeah, that's right. He moved to the and, East coast, uh, right? He moved like Boston he moved or something back to Boston. Yeah. And, uh, not too long after that and moved up to Portland. Um, which I did also a little while later. So, you know, it was kind of just like a dissipation of being geographically together. So that just makes it a lot harder. Yeah. And it's a, you know, I mean, I mean, do you think it's, do you think it's like just done done? No, or is like enough to just could get back together again and do it if the, if a, there was a reason to do so? I, I like to think that there could be something um, more. I think it's probably a long shot, but, um, you know, I'd like to see us at least play a show. Maybe we play a show in Bay Area or something. I don't know. It's kind of hard to get everybody together to do that. But um, that's, you know, something I would love to see happen. The other thing that I've been thinking about is, um, the next project that we're going to hopefully do with Bulbous Monocle is like a rarities Oh, cool. Record. Awesome. So I've been working on going through old tapes and compiling together, you know, there's stuff that was on seven inches, stuff that was on compilation tracks, there's a few unreleased things. And then, you know, in going through that, I'm finding like, there's a bunch of studio stuff that we never finished and some jams, some some unfinished compositions that, you know, maybe we could kind of complete those to yeah. be some sort of hybrid of of the the old days and you know some new stuff added. The old and, and the new, yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but um, didn't Wire do that a couple of years ago? Yeah, I think they they, they did. They? Yeah, they, it is. It's um, <laughs> I think it's called Change Becomes Us, if I remember correctly, and it's pretty mm-hmm. good. It's 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 like. I, I was very, it sounds like it's like stuff they had from around that era between mm-hmm. like chairs missing and one five four. And, uh, cool. I guess they just were like, yeah, whatever at the time. And then they went back and revisit and it rips if I remember correctly. Cool. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, there's definitely some stuff that I've, you know, listened to and like, wow, this is, I've completely forgotten about this and this was pretty cool. And it would be cool to get it out there in some way, either as just like a instrumental record or, you know, actually go in and add some stuff to it and put something like that out. So, you know, I think there's still possibilities for doing something like that. How did you... When you when you guys were playing live, how did you choose the set? And and here's why I ask is because every time I saw you, it seemed like the set was very well balanced. Like there was some, at least one song from like most of the major records. And when you have a catalog that deep, mm-hmm. you know, like it's it, it's almost like daunting just to think of the idea of putting a set together. Um, yeah. Do you start yeah. it with like attrition? You'd be like everyone picks a song, or there's some stuff you know always goes in because it works well. I I I mean we we did try to balance it out you know between different records i I know that was there was some consciousness of that uh but usually set list was put together like you know right before the set because if when (laughs) we're on tour at least yeah you know because you're playing every night and you get tired of certain things you want to (laughs) mix it up so you know we usually do a different set list every night and um we, we i remember that coming into the mix like Okay, let's let's balance this out kind of chronologically to yeah. some degree. Although you you want to highlight stuff that is on the album that you're supporting. Well, sure, yeah. Yes. I mean, that's a good good um, idea. Yeah, <laughs> and I think Brian was kind of like the so the sequence guy on the live set list. Like he had a good knack for how to put things in order, and he, usually he kind of did that part of it. Yeah, and it's well, like I said, it's very. I always it's occurred to me it's always very well balanced, and that's um, good. You know, it's, it's something you could give a lesson to uh, some other bands, frankly. Uh, <laughs> no names mentioned. Um, okay, so I it would be. I, I'm a big, I'm a big Milk Cult fan. Oh yeah, I, I think everyone <laughs> I've ever had on that has taken part in Milk Cult, I've at least made like one passing mention. Uh, to to Milk Cult and I, I love your song on the, on Burner Berry. Oh, thank you. Thank uh, you. How how did that come to pass? Uh, gosh, uh, I haven't listened to that in so many years. Um, you know, we we used to play with Steel Pole a lot, mm-hmm. um, Steel Pole Bathtub, and um, we're friendly with those guys. And when they started um, doing Milk Cult. Um, they reached out to me, Mike and Dale, and um, asked. I guess they were kind of putting this whole album together. We were going to have different guest vocalists for each song. So they asked me to come up with something um, for, you know, this groove that they had already recorded. So I just listened to it a lot. And I, I have some vague memory of, like, walking around Marin Headlands with that on my Walkman and just, like, playing ideas over and over and like with a little notepad like jotting things down and um eventually coming up with with that with that vocal and then uh that recording it was really cool because they had some i don't know they had booked some fancy studio had this incredible vocal booth and vocal mic that was you know the likes of which i had never dealt with before so that was a real treat yeah well it's almost kind of seems like a little fairy tale or something you know yeah a little vignette definitely a fairy tale kind of thing yeah 
uh, yeah, and it's, it's so it's something where it strikes me as very uniquely them and very uniquely you, which is interesting for a collaboration. I think that that's mm-hmm. kind of hard hard to pull off. I think it's an interesting record. I mean, I certainly talk about it enough, but uh, Steel Ball Bathtub and Thinking Fillers Union, absolutely bands that sound nothing like each other, but kind of make sense creatively to be in the same world, big time. Yeah, yeah, and it was always a good bill when we played with those guys. Uh, and they were kind of like that live they were sort of like the the antithesis of us in certain way because you know they had a lot of tapes that they would play live and the second they finished a song they would you know they had some foot pedal that would turn on a tape and it was just like this kind of non-stop thing that was seamless in their set you know, and then we would come on and we would play a song, and then like two minutes later, we got, we got all our quick, pedals yeah. set up and switched <laughs> instruments. Then we'd start the next song. Yeah, yeah, it was like constantly. Oh, I gotta get it, get over to the contrabass. Yeah. Now. Okay. Uh, no, that that's that's really funny. And when I think that that's um, uh, by the way, a Radio Shack uh d- like dictation pedal, like you attach to the tape recorder. That's what they use to trigger it. And I know because I I pestered them about it until they told me. <laughs> it didn't take that much effort, uh, but it was it was just like yeah, you had to get the crappiest tape deck because the newer ones yeah. had like a like an auto cutoff, but it would kind of <laughs> down. It was like a three dollar little thing from Radio Shack. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, oh, <laughs> Steve Fisk saying hello. Hey, uh, Steve, friend of the show, former work. guest. Yeah, <laughs> this is Heavenly Ten Stems. <laughs> <laughs> Or not. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's not bring in PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what have you what have you been up to musically since Thinking Fellers? Like, what 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 have you been what have you been doing? What's um... well, you know, I took a long stretch of not really doing much of anything because I had young kids and just kind of focused on that. Um, I've been living up in Portland, Oregon, for about the last twenty years, and. Uh, but the last several years have gotten back into playing with some bands up here um, and also doing some solo uh, recording some songs as the white shark, my solo. Oh, that's playing. right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, um, have a band. We perform every once in a while, white shark shiver uh, in Portland. So playing some of those songs live. Um, also play once a month in an improv thing here called the Grand Style Orchestra. Um, this guy Shorty Grapes, who used to be in the band Fuck, he uh, oh yeah, I remember Fuck. Yeah, yeah, he has. It's it's kind of a like a jazz sort of thing, but it's just like whoever wants to show up uh, once a month when we play. Um, doesn't matter what instrument you play or how well you play it. You just show up and, and improv. He's plays some stuff on the keyboard and it's been going for many years now. So that's, that's a fun thing that I do once a month. Nice. Um, yeah. And then you've not closed down the idea of, uh, thinking fellow stuff in the future. If opportunity should knock and, or present you with a gigantic check. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> I certainly haven't closed down the the possibility. I mean, you know, you got to get more people than just me on board. Yeah, there's a lot of schedules. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, 
So I don't know. I don't know if anything will happen, but I'd love to see something happen. Uh, so, and again, I'll, I'll throw a link in the show notes for the Bulbous Monocle reissues of these records. And, and you say yeah. that there's, there, there's going to be like a, like the, the B-sides kind of thing coming together. Yeah, we got these two reissues coming out now. The vinyls, you know, coming out this month. And um, I think the next project is this kind of odds and sods sort of thing. Um, probably going to be a double LP. Fantastic. And um, and then you know some other reissues in the in the future after that. But um, you know his focus for the label it's a new label, but it's really focused on that San Francisco scene of late '80s through late '90s. So you know after the after this rarities thing, you know there may be some other bands that he he reissues, and then we'll pick up you know, at some point after that with some other, you know, maybe reissuing Mother of All Saints or Lovely Bill or something like that. Um, I, I mean, I, I personally love that because even though I'm, you know, from the Bay Area, like by the, you know, I was, I was, y'all were like a class ahead of us. So like I, I, I caught like the tail end of it, but I was like, oh, I missed everything at the time. And, uh, you know, I didn't actually miss everything, but it felt like it yeah. <laughs> as a kid. And well. There was so much great stuff going on at yeah. that time. It was a really wonderful place and time to be and just to go out and, and see shows, let alone be in a band, but just to take yeah. in shows. And and know so, that whatever you saw was going to be, you know, awesome and unique yeah. and cool. And that's yeah. something to so be said there, for that. There's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of fodder there for, um, for reissues and stuff that – be great to expose more people to. I, I like the idea of it being sort of like uh, fixed to a point in time too, and like mm-hmm. a, for, for a, a lack of a better term, a scene, if you will. Um, right. Because I think people tend to have a tendency to lionize bands at a macro or uh, microcosmic level as being, you know, standing yeah. alone and and like okay, maybe that's true sometimes, but also like it's it's nice to see a celebration of community, even with the community oh, yeah. doesn't actively yeah. exist, right? Uh, Mark, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for spending so much time with me to talk about these. This, this oh, is, thank uh, you for having me. I'm a big, it's been a pleasure. Big nerd on this span, so I'm. Uh, it's, it's quite the treat. Uh, last thing, this is the only can question I ever ask folks, and you can choose to interpret it however you like. But why do you do what you do? I don't know. Uh, I don't know where that comes from. It's just like... I always gravitated towards music, you know, just even as a young kid. And it was always around in our house, even though, you know, my parents listened to church music and, you know, easy listening. My dad was a preacher and my mom was in the choir. And so it was like a lot of church music. But then at the same time, I had uh older brother and sister who are quite a few years older than me that were kind of more like growing up in the hippie era and that's what they were listening to on the radio so that was the soup that i was growing up in the, the, those you know juxtaposed styles and and i don't know music just was always something that seemed like the way that i could express something I, i'm sure i didn't think of it in that way at that time but 
whatever it is inside of me that I want to express, it, it seemed to come out the most naturally through music. So it was just, you know, kind of the natural thing to pursue. And then when you meet up with other people that kind of have that same thing going on, it's a magical thing. And you just kind of, then you just run with it. I don't know how else to put it. Mark Davies, thank you so much, man. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care, and like I said, I'll uh, put all the links in for folks to get these reissues. I think it's well worth everyone's time. Yeah, check and, it out. Uh, Bulbous Monocle. I'm I'm real glad that it's happening. I'm really glad for the 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 next one too. So. All right. Thanks, brother. Take care. Thanks. Oh, there he goes. Mark Davies, what an awesome dude! That was awesome. I hope you guys, uh, hope you guys got something out of that, at least half as much as I got out of, and enjoyed that deep nerdery, deep dive. Let's hear, uh, let's hear something off of the Strangers from the Universe record. This is Socket.
right. There you go. There you go. So that was Hurricane off of Monishing the Bishops. And before that, off of Strangers from the Universe, Socket. Both those are available on Bulbous Monocle. Bulbous Monocle. As reissues. Bulbous-monocle.bandcamp.com. Bulbousmonocle.com. Look it up if you don't know how to spell it. Uh, hey, that was great. Hope you guys really enjoyed that. Uh, it was great talking to Mark. Awesome dude. Obviously a big fan of that band. I think that um, everyone should check out those reissues is what I think. So I hope you all enjoyed that. You can follow, uh, there's a Thinking Fellers Instagram account. And I know a lot of y'all on our Instagram. Y'all. It's TFUL282official. You know, as opposed to all those uh, imitators. And uh, there's there's a lot of cool tour photos and stuff like that. It's, it's well worth following if you uh, are on that platform. Hey, name of the show is Code New Transport Controversial. Thank you very much for listening to it. You can find the show on the internet where we all live. Thursdays, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific, Radionope.com. Streaming on YouTube, Twitch, sometimes other places when I feel so inclined. Uh, no ads, no sponsors, no kidding. All of the archives, ProtonCoversal.com. If you like the show or even just a single episode, please feel free to share it along. That's always helpful. If you like to and want to hear episodes sooner, patreon.com slash protonconversal. Uh, $1 a month will achieve that goal. Thank you very much. Uh, a lot of cool stuff coming up. That's pretty much it for touring for the for me for the fall. So it's going to be a lot more protons coming up. This microphone turns sound. Anything else? I think that's it. Stay safe out there. Can you hear me now? And check you later. Dark and lonely. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now?
Welcome to my top ten. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! It's the, it's the end of radio. The last announcer plays the last record. The last what? Leaves the transmitter. Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now? Broadcasting if there's no one there to receive. It's the end of radio. As we come to the close of our broadcast day. Hey, hey!